Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We have been talking about wisdom, and uh, last week we talked about the importance of wisdom. We talked about the value of wisdom. Uh, We talked about the fact that the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. The the first step to wisdom is just recognizing how valuable it is. That, says the author of Proverbs, says Solomon, it's worth everything. It's more precious than silver. It's more better returned than gold. It's just this amazing thing. And that there are these incredible benefits to it. And so, the most natural follow-up question to that is, well, then what is it? It was so valuable, and we want to get it. What, what actually is it? We all have a sort of intuitive sense, right? Wisdom is sort of knowing certain things, having a certain perspective that's accurate. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong. Uh, being able to understand how the world works. These are all sort of intuitive senses of what wisdom is. It's interesting, scripture has a lot to say about wisdom. Arguably, more than sort of any other single topic, including God himself, you could argue maybe wisdom is the thing it talks about most. Maybe faith. But it's in that, it's in that top tier. It comes up a lot. In fact, so much that there's no way that we can possibly define it or look at all the passages or explore it fully in the three or four weeks that we have for this series. I don't know I said three or four, it is four. In the four weeks that we have for this series. <laughs> I do know that by this time. So we can't cover all of it intensely, and in fact, in a lot of ways, this is what we do in our groups anyway, right? We're sort of exploring the wisdom at a given moment, in a given situation. You know, what should we do here? What is wisdom here? What is, what is wise here? So really, in a lot of ways, that's what we do in our groups. That's one way to describe what happens. So we don't expect to do that here. But there is a really interesting thing that I think doing tonight will help. You know, if, if you ask a Hebrew, uh, back in the time of the Old Testament, if you asked him what wisdom was, if you said, search your scriptures, which of course is what we refer to as our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, organized differently, but much of the same material. If you asked them in the time of Jesus, what is wisdom? Their answer would be to say, well, we know that in our scriptures, there are three books. They're very long. They're very complicated. They're very intense. And if you read all three of them, you might begin to understand what wisdom is. That's a very Hebraic answer to the kinds of questions that the Greeks like to ask. Just give us a definition of wisdom. And instead, the Hebrews collected within their Old Testament, part of their organization was three books that they called the books of wisdom. And that they really felt that the combination of these books together would perhaps begin to give us an understanding of what wisdom was. And those three books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And if you've dipped in any one of those, you know that they're long, and they're complicated, and they're kind of intense. And yet they say these three books together reveal to you what wisdom is. So what we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning of Proverbs, work our way through every verse, then we're going to go to Ecclesiastes, 
or through Evna. We're going to get that all done. In three weeks? In, no, today. Today. You go ahead and No, what we're actually doing is we're just today, tonight, we're just going to give an overview of the three books. We're going to try to, I'm going to give you a little shortcut, but my encouragement is don't live on the shortcuts, right? What happens on Sunday night is intended to be inspirational and shortcuts and a little bit of a, a pathfinder for you. My encouragement would be, it would be absolutely great if you spent some portion of the rest of your days in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, exploring them a little more deeply, and maybe even to see if the things I'm telling you today are actually there. But what we're going to do today is we are just going to hit a real a, a survey, that's what they might say, uh, of just an overview of these books to try to give you a sense of how the three of them together give us a picture of wisdom, which is profound. And complex, but not impossible to sort of at least grasp on some level. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. So we're going to we're going to hit those three. We're going to talk about them, and when we're done, I hope not that you will have all of the answers you want, but that you will have a better understanding into what wisdom is. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll take a look at Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Your scripture is amazing. You are amazing, God, that you have given us, you know, I just think of all the desire that man has for wisdom, all the desire that man has for answers, all the times that people cry out to God just asking you to explain things better to us. And here you have devoted 66 books of scripture, Lord, to doing just that, to revealing to us some of the most profound and important and necessary things. And as complicated as they sometimes feel, you've done it in a way that is accessible to the typical average person. And so tonight, I ask as we look at these three books that you would just open our ears and just remind us to empty our cups and just help us to be grateful tonight. Help us to really, if nothing else, to be in awe of the time and the effort and the care that you've taken, even to plant these three books to lead us so carefully to a clearer understanding of you and of wisdom. Pray that you would just help me not to get in the way tonight, and uh, instead just to be a, a, a faithful vehicle for your heart and your thoughts this evening. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. So we looked at Proverbs last week. We talked about that there's a path of wisdom and a path of folly, and that the path of wisdom leads to all sorts of benefits like life and security and protection and prosperity and health and, and understanding. And that's the path of wisdom. And you take that, those are the things on that path. And the path of folly leads to self-destruction and, and death and poverty and kind of everything the opposite. And we talked about how wisdom says you kind of, you get to choose, right? You choose the path. You go this way and you can have these things and you go this way and you'll have the opposite. And that, that wisdom says there's these principles and this is how you can go. We didn't talk so much about it. We talked about how the first four chapters themselves really are just telling you the value of wisdom. But it's true that in the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters are all devoted just to explaining this concept of wisdom and folly. And that wisdom has benefits and folly doesn't. And that you can walk this path and see the path of wisdom, or you can walk this path and see the results of folly. The first nine chapters are devoted to that. And then chapters 10 through 31 give us examples of what wisdom looks like versus folly to help us identify which path we're on. And in some ways, to help us take the next step on that path to say, 
Folly calls out to me and is very alluring. Wisdom calls out to me and I guess I'm supposed to follow that, but how do I really know what the next step is? And Proverbs gives us all these examples in 10 through 31 so we can say, well, according to Proverbs, this is the path of wisdom. This is the path of folly. And just to read you, just to give you an example so you can see the kinds of things that come up in 10 through 31. I know a lot of you have read them, but it might have been a while or maybe you've forgotten. But either way, just to give you a little example. This is, these are all in just chapter 10. I could have grabbed from anywhere, but I just grabbed from chapter 10. It says this. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Path of folly, path of wisdom. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. The name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. You can see, that's the nature of a proverb, right? Most of those proverbs from 10 through 31 flow that way. You can be on this side, or you can be on this side, and here's the benefit on this side, and here's the result on this side. And it lays out all these principles. And the truth is, we talked last week about the complication. We'll talk about it more, because remember, there's three books that we're encouraged to look at to understand the totality, or at least a fuller picture of wisdom. And so we talked about the fact that, you know, one of the things we often do is we hear things like that, and our first response is to go to the exceptions. But for a moment, just take it, let's just acknowledge that when we're not ourselves mired in exceptions, when we ourselves aren't facing the, the exception, we affirm these words ourselves. This is the kind of advice we give other people. These are the things we recognize. We say to people, this is how the world works. Those of us who have kids do this a lot. This is the way the world works. This will bring you half, make, give you a better chance of happiness, we tell our kids, than this one. We don't tell them all the exceptions. We don't say to them, don't worry about it. Be lazy or not, it won't matter. Because intuitively and deep down, we do know it matters. We do know there's truth. There is wisdom in this. And so we see the value in certain things being wise and leading to success and other things that don't. But let's dig just a little bit deeper in Proverbs before we move on. See, where the teacher in Proverbs is really coming from is this. Remember, he says at the beginning, in chapter one, we read briefly last week, he says that God created the universe with wisdom. Let's just take out the word wisdom for a moment because it's filled with all sorts of baggage and attempts to understand already. Let's throw the Hebrew word in there just for a moment. The Hebrew word is C-H-O-K-M-A. In Hebrew, C-H is usually pronounced like you're clearing your throat. <laughs> so it's chakma. Just for fun, everybody say chakma. <laughs> Good, you did it as well as I did. Anybody who's actually Yiddish or Hebrew will probably tell us we're all wrong, and they're probably correct, but that's pretty close, okay? All right, so this is the Hebrew word that's translated wisdom throughout Proverbs. And, and what chachma means is it means it's this thing that God used to create the universe. That's the first time we're introduced us to it. It says that God created the universe with chachma. What that means is that there's a certain nature to things. God created the word, world with a certain order. There's a way that things work. There's a way that things function. He made certain principles, and he made certain laws, even in the physical world, that are part of the universe. It's just the way they are. 
It's not a moral thing necessarily in this point. It's not good or bad, but it's just some simplicity. He tells us, for example, that we grow up, we expect certain things. One is that we learn early on in our lives that gravity's a thing, that rocks fall, and they fall hard. What's that? We do too. <laughs> and we also fall. That's true. And balloons don't. Isn't that interesting? We learn that in this, in this nature of the universe, it's not that everything falls. Some things don't. But anyone like a balloon? Take home? There's no kids here today. You want one, Mary? Yeah, I want a balloon. All of you are thinking I have to hold on to it the whole time? No, that's no problem. You can tie it to your chair if you want. To your wrist? Like a kid at the. Oh, yeah, it's on your wrist. When I tie it to my wrist, I'll just play with it. He's asking for it. He gives you a balloon. I don't think that's true. So the truth is, God made the world, and within that, there's certain laws. And you can argue about it. You can say, I don't like gravity. When I fall, I don't particularly like gravity, right? That's a bummer. Why does it have to be that way? That's unfair. Maybe, whatever. But it is the way the world is. And so if you're smart, you learn to operate within the world according to the way these things are, right? You learn that if you walk off a building, you're more likely to fall than float. And so that's chakma, even in the natural world. There's certain, certain things that just are. It's the physical realities. It's the principles that are just true of the universe. And what seems, and, but the truth is that even in science, we discover this, that, that maybe at first we thought everything fell. And then we discovered that there's certain things that are lighter than air, and they actually don't fall. They actually float. And in fact, even because of this, we discovered that these principles aren't rendered invalid. A balloon doesn't suddenly mean that gravity no longer exists. Right? It just means we didn't understand gravity completely now. We, we still don't, but we didn't understand it even enough to accommodate a balloon, perhaps, at one point. And that's why things that are impossible in one generation are very possible in the next. Who would have ever thought that we could communicate with people across the world and see them without them actually being in the same physical space? That's crazy. The justice thought that. <laughs> but at one time, that wasn't even something considered, right? Can you imagine, you know, hey, Christopher Columbus, you don't have to travel anywhere. You can just see the other side of the world on this little screen. It's impossible. So as we understand the principles better, things that seem impossible become possible. But it doesn't change the nature of the world, does it? It doesn't mean that those things aren't actually there. Hachma, though, refers to a deeper order. It doesn't just refer to this physical level. That's just an easy example for us to see without the baggage of what we want. We rarely feel that gravity is, is unjust. It just is. But Hachma refers to a deeper order. It, deals, it, it refers to things that deal with moral and mental and emotional and spiritual things. So in other words, laziness is more likely to produce weeds just like a rock is more likely to hit the ground. And hard work is more likely to produce fruit, just like a balloon is more likely to hit the ceiling. And we learn that wisdom is understanding that God is good and just and ordered, and therefore the world is good and just and ordered. And wisdom is living according to the order that exists. So we talked about the chapter 1 through 9 just talks about the fact that walking the way of wisdom leads to life. The chapter 10 through 31 says, here's how it looks and here's how it works. 
and then we learn that God created the universe with chokhmah. It's not created with randomness only, right? Maybe some, maybe not. I'm leaving the randomness question out there, but it is created with order. It is created, it isn't, it isn't, you would have been all surprised if the rock had floated and the balloon had hit the ground, but you weren't surprised that the rock hit the ground and the balloon floated because that is what you're used to. Because it's not random, it's the order of things. And so Hachma tells us that God created the universe with Hachma, and therefore, it makes sense. Oops. Wow, let me go back. You can think my keynote I don't know, what is it? God created the universe with Hachma, and therefore it makes sense to function in the universe with Hachma. And it explains, it tells us wisdom this way. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we were told that the, the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. But we're also told in Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. But let's take a little further look at what that means. Proverbs 9.10, it says it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's take one more look. There's a psalm that says the same thing, but I want you to notice the context of the psalm. Psalm 116 Maybe. My brain says that's not the right reference, so if you look it up and it's not, just look like, go back to 112 or 111, because I think that's what it actually is, but maybe it's 116. It says, the works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and brightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belong eternal praise. This whole passage is pointing out that God is good, God is just, his precepts can be counted on because the world is ordered. The world follows the same principles of God himself. God used the orderliness, the faithfulness, the justice, the rightness of himself when he created the universe, when he created the world. And so the fear of the Lord, when we talk about the fear of the Lord meaning the beginning of wisdom, in this context what it's referring to is trusting in the order that God has created. Saying God created it, therefore these things will be true. Saying laziness. See, in, 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 in the physical world, if you don't fear the Lord's order and you ignore gravity and you say, I don't really believe gravity is, affects me, I'm bigger than that, then you'll die. Most likely. When you walk off a cliff or a high tower. But if you say, yeah, I fear gravity, I understand gravity is a thing that happens, and you live according to that order, you'll do better. You'll live longer. Same is true of the precepts. If you say, laziness doesn't matter, I will be just as successful as I'm lazy as I am if I work harder, then you're, you're flaunting it. You're saying, I don't trust God's order is part of things. I don't fear the Lord. So in Proverbs, when it talks about fearing the Lord, there is a personal element of fearing who he is, understanding who he is, respecting him. But it's also contextually in Proverbs, it's this idea of recognizing the chakma of the universe. That the reason things work the way they do is because that's how the God who created them made it. And it's wise to recognize that, to not work against that. Again, those of you who are parents, you've seen this. There are times you tell your kids things because you know, you've experienced it in your life, and you've seen it, and you know that this principle will bring this. If you are unwilling to hear correction and kindness and, and teaching 
and reproof from those who love you, and you're unwilling, therefore, to hear it from anybody, because you're never going to hear it from people who don't love you, you're going to do worse. It's just part of Chachmah. It's part of the universe. So this is what Proverbs says. This is Proverbs. So what that comes to is that in many ways, what it says when it says, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is it means the beginning of wisdom is respecting God's order. It's giving credence to the fact that he knows whereof he speaks because he created the order. Because the order came from who he was, and he is a God of order. Even in my own life, with my own parents, right? I'm sure that a lot of you have had this experience. Um, um, Mark Twain, everything is attributed to Mark Twain, but this one really is. Mark Twain um, actually said at one point that the older he gets, the wiser his parents became. Right? Because we begin to see that they were telling us about the order of things, and we didn't respect them, we didn't fear them enough to believe it. We didn't see it. And as I've gotten older, I've been able to see, yeah, my folks didn't do everything right. But there were certain things that they taught me, that they showed me, that they said to me, that I look back and I think, yeah. They were right. I didn't see it. They were right. If I feared them more, respected them more, trusted them more, I would have seen it. And that's what he's saying here. Respect God's order. If your response to Proverbs is to simply say, there's exceptions in my life, therefore, I don't believe there's any order in the universe, you're not going to do very well. It is true that the folly is going to be an unpleasant road for you because you refuse to even acknowledge the difference. But remember, there are three books to wisdom literature. It doesn't end with Proverbs. This is Proverbs. In Proverbs, wisdom is chakma. It's the order of the universe, and respecting that order from God is wisdom. The next book we have is Ecclesiastes. You can read ahead if you want. I would encourage you to respect the order. <laughs> and we'll walk through it. Ecclesiastes is interesting. In Ecclesiastes, the author, there's really two characters sort of in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the author himself, and then there's the teacher. The author speaks of the teacher. The teacher says this, the teacher says that. And the author introduces us to the teacher because he wants us to hear the teachings of the teacher. But it seems that at the end, the author takes all those teacher teachings and summarizes them himself. Now, some people argue the author and teacher are the same person. Some people argue they're different. It doesn't really matter. It does appear, and has long been the understood tradition, that both are probably Solomon. Solomon is probably the author and the teacher. But he separates them a little bit, I think, so that he can both speak as the teacher as a very specific role, we'll talk about in a second, and as the author who's then able to summarize what the teacher said and make some more direct statements that the teacher, by nature of his role, is not able to do because the teacher's job is to be the critic. The teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is a critic, and he's critiquing, in a sense, the wisdom of Proverbs. The, the teacher in the book of Solomon, it's as if he's looking back. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Sorry, Ecclesiastes. And here's the interesting thing about this. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He's critiquing himself, <laughs> which is fair. <laughs> but he's doing more than that. He's critiquing the whole order that we just talked about was the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And in Ecclesiastes, he is critiquing the basic and, and, and sort of traditional understanding of Proverbs. He is the critic. 
Now, the Hebrews didn't say, therefore, the book of Proverbs is not a book of wisdom when we throw it out. No, it's still valuable. But now you have to bring in the ecclesiastical critique. And to make it really simple, because Ecclesiastes is very intense and very dense, meaning lots in it, not meaning dumb. It's weird that we use the word dense in two different words. Something could be dense, meaning really intellectual, or it could be dense, being really dumb. That's the English language we were talking about. Both means hard to penetrate. Hard to penetrate, thank you. Good, that'll work. So, let me just give you a little summation, and it's up here. The teacher critiques the Proverbs of Wisdom in three basic ways. He says the problem with this idea that if we go this way, everything will be dandy, and if we go this way, everything won't, he says the biggest problem, he gives a lot of little, little inter things, like sometimes you just don't see it happen. That's fine, we all see that, but it goes deeper. And he says the biggest critique is this. Number one, time happens to everyone regardless of wisdom or folly. He says it doesn't matter how wise you are, how stupid you are, guess what happens? Time passes. Guess what happens? People forget you. Guess what happens? The things you did don't, don't last. Time happens to everyone. And being wise and walking the path of wisdom, he says, doesn't change that. Our experience shows us that. Time still happens. Our works decay and our legacy will be forgotten. Now, he is as guilty of generalizations as Proverbs is, because at one point he says, no one ever remembers anybody who lived 100 or so years ago, but we're all talking about Solomon today, so there's some question about this. But nonetheless, his point is pretty sound. Time happens to you regardless of what path you're on. There's no perk, there's no benefit that stops that. He goes on and he says, regardless of wisdom, more importantly, death happens to all of us. He says it straight out. You know who dies? The wise and the foolish. That's who dies. Everybody. There's a 100% track record. Life is terminal. And he says it doesn't matter how wise you are. You still die. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Falling person dies a little bit earlier, but in the scheme of 200 years, everybody dies and forgotten anyway. It doesn't really matter if you die when you're 20 or 50. That's the critique. And here he gives one more critique. It's tricky for us. These are both tricky for us so far. Ecclesiastes is a tricky book. <laughs> the third critique. He actually says within the book of Ecclesiastes something called chance. He calls it chance. Now, I don't know how to define chance, really, any more than define wisdom. And people will ask Christians sometimes, do you believe in luck? Somebody asked me that the other day, almost a stranger, but I made some comment. They knew I was a pastor, and they said, do you believe in luck? And the answer was supposed to be no. And I said, well, I believe there are things we can't explain that seem to be randomly happening that sometimes are good and sometimes are bad, and I think it's fair to call them luck. And they said, oh, oh. <laughs> I didn't know I'd actually thought about this question before. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Solomon says. There's this thing called chance, right? One guy's, you know, walking out on the street, and he gets eaten by Leviathan. I'm trying to think of Solomon's world. We walk down the street, get run over by a bus, and sometimes you can't explain it other than chance. You can't say that person was doing anything wrong, you can't, it's just, you can't find it. It's just, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. Or maybe a bus is complicated because someone's driving it, but a hurricane. That's your house. A tornado gets your house, and, and the house next door just took someone to Oz. That's really unfair. <laughs> <laughs> but something he calls chance happens to all people, and he says, 
Wisdom doesn't seem to be the thing that makes a difference there. Chance happens to those on the path of life, and it happens to those on the path of folly. Sometimes it's good chance on the path of folly. Sometimes it's bad chance on the path of wisdom. That's a critique. He says, time happens to all people. Death happens to all people. Chance happens to all people. He says, very specifically, he goes on and says things like, the race doesn't always go to the swift. The battle doesn't always go to the strong. In other words, life is not always fair. One of the underpinnings of Proverbs, as we talked about, is that Hakma tells us that the world is ordered. In a sense, you could say, it tells us the world is fair, that you get what you deserve. And again, when we're teaching people, we fall to that, because we understand there's a degree to which that is still true. But as Solomon is pointing out, it ain't always true. <laughs> Life isn't fair. It doesn't always happen the way that you want it to happen. The order is perhaps not always so obvious as Proverbs seems to imply. Just as Proverbs has a word that it uses over and over, chachma, so the author of Ecclesiastes has a word that he uses over and over, teacher uses it over and over. Now it's typically, and I'm beginning to think sort of oddly, translated in most of our translations as meaningless. That's the way we see it now. He says life, meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless. It's an interesting choice for translation because it's not the word. The word in the Hebrew is chevel. Guess what? This is H-E-V-E-L. And H's, they're often pronounced as if you're playing the throat. <laughs> Say chevel. Good job. So chevel is a word that literally means smoke or vapor. And it's clearly a metaphor. The teacher's using it as a metaphor. He doesn't mean literally that everything we encounter is smoke and vapor, but he's using it as a metaphor. And for some reason, current translations have sort of all agreed to translate this metaphor as meaningless. But smoke isn't meaningless. Neither is vapor. It has a meaning. Smoke comes from somewhere. In fact, a lot of times we really rely on that meaning. We say, where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. So smoke means something. He uses this metaphor to say two things. He actually gives it double duty, I believe. And one of the ways he uses it is to say everything is fleeting. That's back to that time idea, right? Smoke and vapor, they come and they're gone. And so he's trying to communicate in one sense that everything is fast for us. It's really fleeting. And, and this is the difference between a 21-year-old a writing the book of Proverbs, which I have no idea how Solomon is, old Solomon is when he's collecting Proverbs, but just this is a mindset thing here. A 21-year-old writing the book of Proverbs where it feels like you have all the time in the world to walk that path of wisdom and see the success. And a 65 or 70-year-old writing the book of Ecclesiastes who's going, oh my gosh, it's coming to an end. And I haven't seen everything yet that I expected. So I think that's one way he uses it, but there's actually another way he uses this metaphor of smoke, which, which becomes apparent as you read what he says about it. So I'm not just making this up myself. But I think it is relevant that he's not saying life is meaningless. That's an argument some philosophers have made, and it is a very depressing argument that you can explore and, and understanding that God gives life meaning helps that. And if that's what you get from Ecclesiastes, that's fine. That's, that's okay, won't argue that. But I think, the more I look at it, the hevel doesn't mean meaningless. What it means is hard to grasp. See, smoke and vapor, the other difficulty with them is not that they're here and gone, but you can't, you can't control them, can you? You just can't get your hand around them, and you can't even quite see them, right? You see smoke, 
and you think you know what you're looking at, and then it shifts before you've got a chance to even figure it out, right? It's like looking at clouds and saying, that looks like a bunny. And you say, does that look like a bunny? And the guy next to you is like, no, it looks like a rocket ship. Well, why can't we see the same thing? Because we're looking at smoke. We're looking at vapor. It's not at all clear. When he says life is meaningless, he doesn't say life is meaningless. He says life is meaningful, but I'll be darned if I have any idea what it means. <laughs> he says life is hard to grasp. It's hard to see. It's hard to make sense of, just like smoke. It's hard to sort it out. See, the teacher isn't saying that in his critique of Proverbs, he's not saying there's no order in the world. Proverbs says there's order in the world. Life is fair, and there's order in the world. There's certain principles and laws which are true. Now, what the teacher is saying is not that Proverbs is wrong about there being an order. What he's saying is the order is a lot harder to comprehend than the author of Proverbs, <coughs> me, so Solomon, <laughs> implied when he wrote the book of Proverbs. The order is a lot harder to grasp. It's all harder to see. And so from our perspective, it's entirely accurate to say it doesn't appear to us that people always get what they deserve. We don't always see what's fair. So the author of Proverbs comes in and he says, balloons float. And in general, we say, that's correct. Who would like a balloon that says princess? I, I want it. It says princess. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's just your hair. Okay. The author of Proverbs says, balloons float. And we say, that seems to be true. And they say, rocks fall. I'm glad that didn't hit either of you. And we say that's true. And the author of Ecclesiastes comes along and says, rocks don't always fall with the thud. Sometimes they kind of float in balloons. Sometimes they fall. But he says it isn't because there's no order in the universe. By golly, that sure looked like, a, I mean, I don't know, pretend you were a fool if you weren't. But by golly, that sure looked like a rock, and that sure looked like a balloon. And we can't always see. It's hard to grasp, and it's hard to comprehend. And so Ecclesiastes gives us these exhortations. This is part of the author's summary, but it's also included within some of the teacher's things. He says, so here's what wisdom looks like then. If you want to understand the order of the universe, number one, hold things loosely. Balloons float, but the fact that this balloon didn't float didn't cause any of you to fall into existential crisis. Lori <laughs> is. I'm sorry, Lori. <laughs> the fact that I threw that rock at Joseph startled some of you, much to my delight. But it did not cause you an existential crisis. Because we know that those kinds of things sometimes have other explanations. And Solomon says the same is true. Hold your understanding of it loosely, not because there is no order, but because you might not be seeing what you think you're seeing. 
So hold it loosely. When you think you've found the key and the principle to life, hold it loosely. Because it might turn out that not everything that looks like a rock falls with a thud. And not everything that looks like a helium balloon floats into the air. Second thing he says is he says embrace the moment as a gift. Those gifts that God gives you, those moments where things are great. He says instead of, instead of requiring that they be formulas and that all rocks now fall with a thud, take the one you've got as a gift from God and love it. Enjoy it and embrace it. And he says, time happens to everyone and it may only be a moment. But don't miss the moment. Embrace that moment. And then, weirdly, he says, walk the path of wisdom because it will give you life. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. No, he says, hotness still matters. Because the fact that we can't see the order doesn't mean the order isn't there. And if God has given us a glimpse of some of the order, we might as well walk that way. If we can improve the odds, <laughs> let's do that. But as you do, as you do, hold things loosely. So when it falls apart, you don't go, ah, and run over to the other side and walk the other path. So that when it falls apart, you don't say, I can't enjoy any moment because every moment will be followed by a bad moment next. Hold things loosely. Embrace the moments of gifting that God gives you, the blessings you receive. Embrace them. Live them. Seize the day. But, fuck this still matters. All right. So Proverbs says respect to the order of the universe. Ecclesiastes says, well, yeah, but it's a lot more complicated. <laughs> so also embrace each moment as a gift, and maybe accept it won't turn out the way you think it will. But that's only two of the three books we're told to look to for wisdom, and I don't know about you, but I'm glad, because at this point, it's still all in. <laughs> it's like, so we walk this way, but we get no guarantees. <laughs> then we come to Job. Once again, sorry, forgot to make this go appear one at a time, so respect the order. Hotma still matters. Hotma still matters. Do not read the first one and then the last one and then go to the middle one. See, what's interesting, it's even a whole different style. Where Job, I mean, where Proverbs is a list of good principles, and Ecclesiastes is sort of a philosophical essay, the book of Job is a story, or a history. I don't mean by story it isn't true. I actually think this is one of those books that is, I'm okay if it's either way. If it turns out it's a parable, it's a really good one. If it turns out it's history, it's also really good that God gave it to us. You may not know this, but, but as history, many people believe that it, is the, that it should fall about the middle of Genesis. It's one of the earliest books in the Bible that we have. It doesn't come there in most of your Bibles, but if you arrange them chronologically, it comes around the time of Abraham, most likely. It's really early. And Job is a story or a history, and it involves some philosophical dialogue in the middle of it. Weirdly, as early as Job is, it reads a little bit like a Socratic dialogue, if any of you have ever read Plato which is interesting, given they're from completely different cultures and times. <laughs> so let me give you the story. Let me just lay it out. You've, you've heard it, probably. Most everybody in the world knows that Job suffered. Most everybody in the world knows that there's a real feeling of unfairness about that. 
Both are true. You've got the story, right? But let's let's talk about it a little bit. Let me give you the summary of the story, and then let's look at how it fits into the wisdom literature. Why on earth do we begin to ask as we go through the story? Did the Hebrews decide this was a piece of wisdom literature? I mean, it could have been history. It could have been. It could have fit in all the. They categorize things as histories and prophecies, and 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 only three books as wisdom literature. Why on earth, Job? Because I think they do understand how it dovetails with the other two we talked about to give us a fuller understanding. So let's see, here's the story. So the beginning of the story, it's just your typical run-of-the-mill story. It's about God and Satan hanging out together. <laughs> right away, you know, this is a peculiar history if it's a history. <laughs> We're getting a glimpse behind the scenes we don't normally get. But what's happening at that moment is that Satan is challenging God's chachma. He's challenging God's wisdom and order. He's saying to God, you got something wrong. You missed something. God says, what do you think I missed? And Satan, by the way, does anyone know what the word Satan means? It means the opposer. So his job here is to oppose God. That's really why he's named that. So the, the opposer, the accuser, he says, he says, well, here's what you got wrong. You think Job loves you. You think Job is a good and righteous man because he loves you. But you're wrong. You know why Job is a good and righteous man? Because you give him stuff. That's it. You have bribed Job to be good. So say, you have given him everything he's ever wanted. He's incredibly wealthy. He's got a beautiful family. He's got the respect of all the people. He has the wisdom of life down pat. But he didn't really earn it. He just gave it to him. And now, because of that, of course he thinks you're awesome. Who wouldn't? God says you're wrong. You got it backwards, and that's not, that's not true. Satan says, well, it is. As long as you're giving him stuff, we'll never know. And God says, no motives are ascribed, so you can think about how all this works. I'll tell you what I think in a little bit. But God says, all right, you have my permission to take things away from him. I will let him suffer. I will remove my blessings. Because I want you to see that you are wrong. That I am not mistaken. That Job is righteous. And it's not just because I give him stuff. That's it. That's the setup. Weird setup. Right? Lots of questions you can have off the bat. Right? You might be uncomfortable with the fact that God made this bargain with, with Satan. You might be uncomfortable with the fact that Job now seems to be a pawn in a little experiment between God and Satan. You're allowed to be uncomfortable with that. You know who probably also knew you'd be uncomfortable with that? Whoever wrote this story this way. Whoever recorded the history knows that this is weird. Don't you see that? You, know, you could be as old as Abraham. It's still weird. But there's really one reason, one really solid reason that we know the story is told this way. One really important reason that we know the story is told this way. Again, you can have all those questions, but there is one really good reason for giving us a peek behind the scenes, for letting us see what's happening in the system. Because Satan says to God, Job is only good to you because he's working the system well. And God says, that's fine. Job is righteous, but I'm going to let him suffer. And at that moment, we now know when we read the rest of the story that when the question comes up, does Job deserve what's happening? What's the answer? No. That's exactly right. The author of this story actually wants to be sure that as you read it, you will never doubt that. And I can't think of any better way to make us sure of that than this little behind-the-scenes peek we got. 
Because God himself says he doesn't deserve what you're about to do. So that's why that part's there. The rest of it, always room to discuss and explore and, and question. But that's why we get that peek behind the scenes. So that as things start to happen to Job, and that's what happens next in the story, you know that, Job loses everything. We can just summarize it that way. He loses everything. I mean, he loses everything to the point where he's the kind of guy who says, I've lost everything, and five minutes later, he's lost more. And then he says, now I've lost everything, and five minutes later, he's lost more. He says, now I've lost everything, and five minutes later, he's lost more. And then he starts saying, I guess I should stop saying that. <laughs> But as it all happens, the one thing we know for sure, the job doesn't deserve it. So the author has set up the dilemma right at the beginning. Regardless of what the, what the behind the scenes thing is, we are to be troubled. We are to be wondering. We are to be feeling what Job is feeling, which is, this is unfair. I don't deserve this. So when Job says in his complaints to God, I don't deserve this, what we should be reading is, he's right. He's not wrong. And why do we know he's right? Because God said it first. That glimpse behind the scenes, it's confusing and troubling. But you know what it is? It's hell. It's smoke. We look at it and we go, that's hard to grasp. It's hard to see what's really happening here. It doesn't say that God was manipulated by Satan, and I don't think he was, but it's easy to look at the smoke and maybe think he was, right? It doesn't say that God didn't care about Job, and I think he does care about Job, but it's easy to look at the smoke in that scenes and think he doesn't care, right? It's hell, it's smoke. It's like Solomon said to us, it's really hard for us to grasp. That story, that behind the scenes, it troubles us and confuses us, but that's okay because the author of Job wants you to be troubled and confused by the whole thing. He wants you, like Job, to say, what is happening? It's hell, it's smoke, it's confusing. It doesn't seem like Chachma. In some ways, that beginning scene is more information than we need, but not enough, right? It's like a little bit, just enough to get us in trouble. We talked about that last week, I don't know if you remember, but we talked about the fact that part of our problem with wisdom is we get just enough to think we're really smart, but not enough to actually be smart. That's what happens here. We get just enough to start making all these decisions about it, we don't know enough to know if our decisions have any weight at all. But isn't that exactly where Job sits? I mean, in fact, Job has less than we have. Job loses everything, and we know he doesn't deserve it. And in that sense, it's an even bigger critique of Proverbs in some way than Ecclesiastes was. It's like an ironclad example <laughs> how the way of wisdom did not lead to everything that we were told it would. So then in the story, what happens is Job's friends come. And Job's friends are solid, very clear, consistent, convicted believers in Chakma. You do right, good things happen. You do wrong, bad things happen. I mean, in a sense, there are even moments where they get awfully close to quoting Proverbs, which they're not doing because they came before Proverbs. But they are quoting those ideas. And we're reading and going, this is the bad guy. But they're saying things that we know are said by other people who were right. <laughs> so his friends come, and they argue with him all, and they tell him, hachma, hachma, hachma. And Job says, yeah, I'm with you. 
I used to believe that too, but hevel, hevel, hevel. <laughs> There's a lot of smoke around here, and I'm not getting it. His friends are so convinced that they actually begin, it's like they begin to, to become the book of Proverbs to him. They begin to say to him, well, if you had done this and this and this and this, you'd be here. But since you're here, you must have done this or this or this or this. And about 60% of their arguments is just them trying to guess which sin he's committed. And about 80% of his argument back to them is him saying, I didn't do that. And some friend you are. <laughs> it's a pretty good portion of his argument, too. <laughs> and the further it goes, the more strong they each get. Until at the end, they're saying, I always knew you were a sinner, which is completely ridiculous. But you know how you get when people argue with you like that. And at the end, he's like, you're the worst person I've ever met. I always knew it. I don't know why we were friends. <laughs> and Job was like, I don't know why we were friends either. And that we agree. And just be glad, says Job, that you aren't in my position. It's like his friends are defending the formulas of Proverbs, defending Chachmah, and Job is saying, it's all smoke, I can't see it, I don't get it. And they're saying, you don't get it because you're a sinner. And Job's saying, if I were a sinner, this would all make more sense. And the story ends with Job demanding an audience with God. Read it carefully. He moves from questions to demands. He literally says at one point, if I could speak with God, I'm sure I could persuade him that he's made a mistake. Now think back to the beginning of this story. Who does he sound like all of a sudden? Satan. Satan. <laughs> I mean, not to, not to put it too harsh here, and I'm not trying to, but he is essentially saying the same thing Satan said. He's saying, God, you got it wrong. You made a mistake. Now, I think we can all empathize with this position. I really do. I can. I, I don't I don't feel much you know judgment towards him. Because where else is he gonna go? So he begins to demand an audience with God. And it kind of waffles, right? Understandably, he's on an emotional roller coaster right now. Sometimes he's like, I know God is good, I know he's fair, I know there's order in the world, this is all gonna work out. And other times he's like, God is not good. And I wish he would tell me why not. And sometimes he says, I demand that God speak to me because I can set him straight. And sometimes he says, I really wish God would speak to me so he could just help me understand. Now, can we again empathize with him being all over the place? Of course we can. Because why? Because it's all chemical. Well, smoke, he's trying to grasp it. Well, what happens at the end of the story is that Job and God have a chat. Now, before we talk about that, I think one of the most overlooked things about the book of Job is this amazing moment. Let's just put it as bluntly as we can. How many of you have ever said, I wish God would just come talk to me about this? And how many of you had a chat with God where he spoke to you out of the storm? I mean, what's incredible about this is that even in his most arrogant boasting and, and, and demanding, God gives him the thing he really wants. But interestingly enough, uh, where he wants answers from is, is, is where he's, the, he's like, I want to talk to God sure. because he, he has the answers. So Job does, yeah, that's a good point. Job does understand that there is something about chakma and order. And that, if you, that, that God can maybe clear up the smoke, right? 
So he's looking for answers there. I think that's the other thing. Sometimes we don't. I know, I've met a lot of people, and you have too. And some of them are atheists, and some of them are believers. And I've met a lot of people who say that they have questions for God, but they're not actually interested in any answers. They just use the questions as a way to avoid changing their minds. And maybe joke gets there, but the point is, at the end, God speaks to him out of a whirlwind. And I just, it's a side note, but I genuinely, genuinely, to me, I am struck with a sense of awe and beauty at the grace of God to, to deign to speak to Job. And after hearing what God says, it's even more amazing. Because part of what God essentially tells Job is, I don't have to say anything to you. <laughs> but he says it to him, <laughs> which shows you that it's a choice that God is making and not chakma that he has to. Okay, that's really not the main point, but I just am struck by that, so I have to go to that. But what God does in his answer is he doesn't answer any of the specifics. You know what's interesting? He doesn't even tell Job about the conversation that we know about. And in one sense, you might think, that might help. Now, I'm not sure it would. It might just confuse him as much as it confuses us. <laughs> but it's interesting, he doesn't even do that. God doesn't even say to him, look, I am so proud of you. I just want to say to sing you what a good guy you are, and you are a good guy. You did it, Job. Rah, rah. That's not the answer God gives. The answer that God gives is not to explain anything. But the answer God gives is to take Job on a sort of virtual tour of the universe. And he walks around the universe, and he points at things, and he says, have you ever wondered how that happened? By the way, do you know how this works? How versed are you in quantum physics, Job? You're you know, a few thousand years before you even have any chance of understanding it. How are you doing with that? What do you think about this over here and this over here? By the way, have you seen my Leviathan? He's awesome. There's this weird moment where God is like really proud of the Leviathan, and, I don't, and we don't even know what the Leviathan is. But God is like, have you seen the Leviathan? He's impressive. Now I've just been watching Jurassic Park, so. I like to think it's a you know it's a dinosaur, but that's probably not true. <laughs> but he goes through and he's and he's giving a virtual universe a picture of the universe, and I just want to read you a sampling because there's nothing better than kind of hearing. And and you do have to picture this in the right way. It's very clear as you read it. It isn't like God came down in human form and sat down with Job and spoke to him really quietly and said, "Let me tell you some things about the universe." No, it says he literally speaks to him out of this incredible thunderstorm. It's like the world is ending. I mean, it is a storm. It's huge. It's a huge magnitude storm. There's lightning and there's thunder, and God speaks to him from the storm. So this is a, this is a very forceful speech. Not angry. I don't think it's angry. But very powerful, right? Very demonstrative. God is making a point. He made a point to Elijah by not speaking in a storm, by specifically saying a storm in which he was not speaking. I figured that one out. He made a point with Elijah to whisper. That was a whole different person in a whole different context with Job. He's pulling out all the stops. And this is what he says from the storm. Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? On where were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Have you been to the ocean? I, I am impressed with what a futile thing it would be to stand at any point in the ocean, except the one where it's already been predetermined it won't come farther. That's cheating. That's like telling a dog to lay down and it's already laying down. I am impressed with the futility of standing at any place in the ocean and saying, back off! <laughs> God says, I did that. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever, Job, given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Now, it's interesting I stop here. But do you notice how there's a little bit of a turn He's talking about all these things of nature, but then he does address just briefly, and he goes on in the next line to do it a little bit too. Talks about, are you responsible for hakma, for the righteous being well and the wicked not? He says, you don't even understand these really simple physical things. Do you really think that if I tried really hard to explain it to you, you could ever understand any more of it? <laughs> I can't begin to explain to you all these things that I did, chakma that created the universe. Do you think I can explain to you the chakma that guides how the wicked fall or don't fall and the righteous live or don't live? Do you really think I can explain to you why it was okay to let you suffer right now? Why it was okay to take everything from you? Do you think I can explain that to you? Joe, it's not that I don't want you to understand, but you can't. You just can't. Which is why I think God doesn't explain. Because as we know, that beginning little part, it helps us a little bit, but does it really? No, we're still confused. <laughs> because there's so much behind that. Do we even really know what Satan is? And I hate to tell you this, we really don't. I mean, Scripture gives us such obscure, confusing references. I believe he's real. I think he's a fallen angel. I know that he hates us. Beyond that, I don't know, because God didn't choose to tell us much. Do I really understand why Satan and God would even be in the same room? No. Do I understand why Satan and God would be having this conversation? Absolutely not. Do I understand why God sort of accommodated Satan at this moment? Not a chance. But the fact that I don't understand it, doesn't mean there isn't an order and a reason to it. It just means I can't understand it. You know, showing him details. God goes on and on, and he shows him details about the universe that no one ever knew. Look carefully. There's things in God's words to Job that do make sense to us today that couldn't possibly have made sense to Job. It's crazy. He gives him details that we might not even notice. Right? Who even thinks about the universe in these ways? Sun comes up, sun goes down, waves come to the beach, they don't go very far. To think about them as having parameters and limits and boxes, and they're only allowed to do what they're allowed to do. We don't think that way. We don't see as much of a chakma as we might. But science does. Science begins to see that these things do have parameters, and they do have boundaries, and they do have stops and hard stops. 
So instead of answering Job, or for that matter, the readers, because we also don't get answers, instead of answering Job or us why this happened, he simply reminds Job that the universe is just far too complex for Job to understand. God understands a million, trillion, gazillion, billion, gamillion. Those are real numbers. I'm sure. Complexities of the universe. He sees the connections and entanglements and directions and order, chakma, of everything at once. And he makes decisions for you with all of that in mind. And we say, why did you make that decision? And God says, I have to start with the earthworm to explain it to you. <laughs> and you still won't get it. To question God's wisdom in this is a lot like me questioning a quantum physicist about quantum physics. It's fine for me to question him. And it's fine for me to ask him to explain what he can. But as he tries to explain it to me, for me to presume that he's just dumb, and I get it better than he does, is pretty arrogant. That's exactly what Job does with God. And the response of Job to this demonstration by God is tellingly enough two things. Gratitude and humility. Job literally says, after God goes on for a while, Job says, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and not, not because I feel like you're not listening to me, but because I suddenly realize how stupid I sound. I suddenly realize how foolish I am. But there's also gratitude. Because what God says and what Job sees is that God is good and right and fair. And that the universe is ordered just as Proverbs says. But that just as Solomon says, Job can't always see the order. And it's folly for him to be so certain that he can. Now, I think it's really important to understand this about the very end of the story, too. Because if we don't get this, we miss the whole point. At the end of the story, God gives Job back twice of everything he lost. As some of you will point out, but not his kids. Right, that's thorny. But, but it's only thorny because you're not understanding the end of the story. If you think that the end of the story is a reward, you miss the whole point. The whole point is, God in his wisdom decided that, it was, that Job would suffer. And God in his wisdom decided at the end to give Job a lot of stuff. But if at the end he decided to do it because Job deserved it, that's a complete refutation of the entire point that God just made to him. It wasn't a reward for passing the test. If that's how we read this story, then we're right to be troubled by the fact that it's a lousy reward because he still doesn't have his kids. Having more kids is not the same as getting the kids you lost back. We all know that. So if it's supposed to be a reward, or it's supposed to put everything back the way it was, it doesn't do that. But it's not supposed to be that. Why does God give Job twice as much and all his wealth back at the end? The answer is, because God in his wisdom decided it. We are not supposed to read into that any other explanation, any more than we were supposed to read into it the sun. Now maybe there's something about the fact that well, I just don't know. That's just the point. You've got to end it there. There is no me. Leave the baby out. What we know about Job is he reaches humility and a certain kind of wisdom before he got everything back. If God had just given him everything back and then Job was like, now I get it. You were just testing me. Again, that ain't what the story was about. 
God doesn't say to Satan, let's test Job. And if it was a test, then Job failed, and that means God failed. It wasn't a test. It wasn't about that. The ending is as mysterious as the beginning. The gift that he's given is as less clear in Chachmah as the suffering that he received. So what do we make of all this? We have these three books now. They come together. And what are the conclusions we can draw from them? Number one, actually all three of them acknowledge that Chachmah is real, that there is an order, that there is a rightness, and that it comes from God himself. Number two, at least the last two, Ecclesiastes and Job also revealed to us that Chachmah is Hevel. Chachmah is Hevel. The order is smoke. We don't get it. We don't always see it. Proverbs says, here it is. But the other two books remind us, yes, here it is. But you don't always see it. Sometimes the road is foggy. It's not always super clear. Chachmah is real. There's an order to the universe born of an order inherent in God, right and wrong and just. They're all real and they're not arbitrary. But Chachmah is also Hebel. It's not meaningless, but it's difficult to comprehend. It's full of variables, and so full of variables, so full of complexity, says Job, that prediction is tricky. But the next thing we see is that incredible complexity can mask as arbitrary, but it's not. Job says it all feels arbitrary. His friends say it's not arbitrary, it's because you did something wrong. They're both wrong. It's not arbitrary, but it's not because God did something wrong. I mean, Job did something, or God. <laughs> but it's not because Job did something wrong. There's a complexity here that we are never explained, except for God to say, you can't understand that complexity. Now, here's our problem with all this. When somebody in our life, a boss or a parent or someone else in our life, says to us, you need to do this, but I can't explain why, because you're too dumb, we are understandably going to resist that. But why? Because your boss or your parent may or may not be smarter than you. By the way, sometimes they are. <laughs> and sometimes it might just be hard to explain. How many, we all hate it. We hated it when our parents said, because I said so. And then we became parents and we said, because I said so. And you know why we do that? Because there's a certain point in our brain where we're like, I can't explain this to you. It's too complicated for you right now. You're not listening to me, so just trust me. But with humans, it's natural that we're a little resistant to that because you're not that much smarter. <laughs> and you personally, if you're doing that, someone might just be using it as an excuse because you're too lazy. But you understand, according to scripture, it's very difficult with God. He actually is dealing with a gazillion, million, trillion, gazillion complexity. That's a different number, if you realize. <laughs> He's really dealing with all those complexities. He really is that much smarter than you. And it really is true that he can't explain it to you because your brain is too small, physically. The neurons are too slow. The neural pathways are too correct. Your IQ is a million, gazillion, brazillion points too low. So when he says it, don't confuse that with your resistance to when other people say it. If I say that to you, I give you permission. And even without it, you should take it to think I'm being just kind of condescending. 
<coughs> but if God says it to you, as he says to Job, where were you when I created all this? Can you even tell me what's out there past the Hubble telescopes to you? Because God says, not only do I know, I put it there. Do you know? Will you ever see it in your lifetime? Probably not. Incredible complexity and mass is arbitrary, but God is not arbitrary. The order is there. It's just so complicated, it literally looks like nothing to us. We cannot draw those connections. The universe is too complex for you to understand why God does what he does. So the principles we see in Proverbs are true, but they are only the simplest form of all the chakmah in the universe. They're just the tip of the iceberg. They're just like up here. They're like what gravity is to quantum physics. Problem with quantum physics, actually, problem with Newtonian physics is that it argued with Aristotelian physics, and the problem with quantum physics and Einsteinian physics is Einstein argued with Newtonian physics, and quantum physics argues with Einsteinian physics, and yet they're all right. On some ways. Aristotle I'm less sympathetic to, but the rest of them are all fairly right. It's just that there are different levels of complexity and simplicity. And it's like Proverbs is, yes, it's true. And our lives, let's be honest, so often our lives are not that complex. We like to think we're the most complex things in the universe, but God is. And we're not always that complex. So sometimes it works. A lot of the times it works. Sometimes it's just too complex. There's too many variables. Hakma doesn't account for all the variables. It says there is order. And it says one variable is if you work hard, you'll make money. But guess what? There's a thousand other variables that say, or not. Now those other variables are not in your control, so it makes sense that Proverbs wouldn't say worry about those. It also makes sense that they're not only on your control, but they're less often. They're less frequently in, in, in problem. They're less frequently contradict. Variables will arise we can't count on. Complexities, which we will sometimes not be able to comprehend, like our balloon and our rock. Sometimes a rock will float. I really wanted to buy a rock, a balloon that looked like a rock and had it actually float. That would have been awesome. But I just didn't have time to get all of these things perfectly coordinated. If we were a rich church, I could have just sent my assistant out to find these tricks. I could have sent them to David Copperfield to make it happen. Sometimes a rock will float and sometimes balloons will fall. So the question becomes, what are we left with? God is always good and just, but also because he's not a quantum physics formula, because he's not a principle, because he's a person, and he's the complex person who created the complex universe, he's not always predictable. But that doesn't mean he's arbitrary. And it doesn't mean he's not good. It doesn't mean he's not just. It just means... And it's so trite, but it is so profound if you will let it be. God works in mysterious ways. Heaven. Yes. The world is ordered, created by God's very wisdom, so the principles are still often useful, as Proverbs says. But the world is hard to comprehend, like smoke or vapor. So while it's still a good idea to follow the principles, and they will often be effective, it's also important to hold things loosely and not count too strongly on any one principle or formula for your whole life. And Job affirms the complexity of the universe, but then reestablishes that it's not arbitrary, that God is not arbitrary. He is good and just and powerful and smart. But I ask again, what do we do with that? 
Proverbs says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. In all the chakma of Proverbs, even at that moment, Solomon knew it really has to come down to not just us figuring it out. See, this verse, lean not on your own understanding, that's more challenging than most of us give it credit for being. Because what else do you lean on? Right? You're like, well, this seems like a good idea. And Solomon comes along and says, don't count on it. <laughs> but you just said, yeah, I know. But you can't count on it. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart. He's the author of the complexity. So when he says these principles are sound, they're sound. But when he also says, but you can't get it all. He's also right about that. Now it's funny, you can probably see the danger implicit even in a verse like this. It says, in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Here's the implicit danger. Let's say we submit all our ways to him. And then you gotta ask yourself, how good will your evaluation be of what a straight path looks like? <laughs> right, isn't that a bummer? I, I did submit all my ways to him, I still didn't get that. Well, but now you've just gone back to Chachma without God. That's the complexity of even this verse. Trust him and trust that he is making your way straight. You say, it looks awfully crooked to me. But then I say, yeah, what do we do with that? Because if his idea of a straight path is so different from our way of a straight path, do we just throw up our hands and say, all is hevel, hevel, hevel? And we can't count on anything? I think that's what the question becomes. Does wisdom give us anything to count on? Proverbs says, chachma. Ecclesiastes says, eh. And Job says, eh. <laughs> So what do we count on? Where do we go with all this? Remember that wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. And this is true of both respecting the order of the universe, but also the personhood of God and the unpredictability of who he is. And it comes down to this. You can count on God. This is what Job learn at the end. You can count on God. You can't count on Chachma because of the hell. You can count on it as far as it will go, but then the smoke will overwhelm you, and you have to say, what do I count on now? And like Job, you say, I count on God. And we count on God himself, being led by who he is, and I think that means these three things. What scripture tells us over and over, so we can count on these things to be always true of God. In his unpredictability, you can always predict this. You can always count on this. There's, there's probably more. But these are three things you can count on always being true of God. Number one, his grace and his goodness. This is not just the side aspect of who he is. This is as integral a part of his character, his nature, as is his triune Trinitarian nature, as is his, his omnipresence and his omnipotence. His grace and his goodness are as true of his nature, in integrated, inherent, and eternal as any other attribute of God. You can count on it. Number two, his power, and I want to add competence. Because it's one thing to believe somebody's powerful, but are they actually competent? <laughs> can they do it right? You can count on his power and his competence always. He's not lost control, he's not lost track, he's not forgotten how to do things. 
He's not become an aged old God over the years. He was already older when he created the universe than you can imagine. Because he was infinitely old. <laughs> I want to be clear. I don't want any of you picking up a set of weird theology there. Number three, you can count on his intelligence and wisdom. His sense, not only his, not only his smarts, but his sense of right and wrong. His sense of order, his understanding of goodness, his chakma, with all the complexities. You can count on those three things. And I really believe this, and I would encourage you to test this. If it doesn't work, take it up with God, because all formulas fall apart somewhere, even mine. But I really think this is true. And I would challenge you, because I think if you really test this, it will very often be helpful to you. There's really no trial, no trial that can ever take you in which if you are able to step back and truly see that God is loving enough and capable enough and smart enough to handle this, there's no trial in which knowing those three things won't still give you hope and comfort. I'm not saying it will suddenly make your path straight in the way you want them to be straight. But I am saying Believing these things makes every trial a little bit less hard because it gives you hope and it gives you comfort to know that God hasn't forgotten you, he hasn't stopped caring, he hasn't become incompetent, and he hasn't become stupid. But to judge any of these attributes of God in the middle of a trial with the limited capacity that we have for any of these is truly arrogant. And it's truly foolish. And it's truly the opposite of wisdom. And that's what Job realized. And that's what Job came to when he said, I will shut up now. <laughs> because I suddenly realized all the folly of my ways. So, wisdom is trusting in God's definition of goodness. I think that's pretty basic. If I were to boil it down, I think that's pretty accurate too. Wisdom is trusting in God's definition of goodness. Some of that we see in Chachma. God says, working hard gives you money. Do we believe God when he says that? Or do we believe the billion-dollar Powerball that keeps coming into us and saying, this is your path to wealth? That's a pretty easy one, because I guarantee you there's a whole lot more people who've made money this way than this way. <laughs> and by the way, Study after study after study after study shows us that people who made money this way tend up being made to be miserable. Do you know the suicide rate, if you just take as a group, lottery winners, it's like 80%. It's so much higher than the rest of the world at any given moment. You say, that would make any sense. Well, guess what? God says it makes sense. And I think this means goodness in all the ways we understand goodness. Life and health and comfort and justice and all of that. Do we trust God's definition of what health is? Do we trust his definition of what justice is? Do we trust his definition of what good is? And that brings us full circle to where we started last week. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I said, we weren't going to get into why that tree, but we kind of are. This is what Satan, Satan, same Satan, we think, I think it probably is, who spoke to God and had the whole Job thing, the opposer, says to Adam and Eve, says to Eve specifically, he says, you will not certainly die. A direct contradiction of what God said would happen. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what we've just seen is that there's too much smoke. We can't. Satan didn't just half lie. He outright lied. He fed them a bill of sale which was so far from the truth. He told them they would be able to see clearly that the smoke would not get in their eyes, that Chachmah would be theirs to control. And we see that he was wrong. And, I, and he knew he was wrong because he suffers from the same lack of wisdom that he introduced them to. That's why God didn't want to see from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because it was just enough information to make us dangerous. It was just enough pretense of wisdom to make us wise in our own eyes. It was just enough grasp of Chachmah to forget about the heaven and to count on the principles and the formulas instead of the God who created the universe through Chachmah. It was the opposite of wisdom. And so we see that wisdom is returning to the trust, the trust that God called Adam and Eve to in the first place. It's simply returning back to saying, let me define good and evil for you. And good means all the things you think good should mean. But you gotta trust me to get you there. Proverbs encourages trust in God by encouraging trust in the hakma with which he created the world. Ecclesiastes encourages trust by challenging us to recognize the haziness of life in hell and to embrace the gifts from God in the moments in which they come. And Job encourages us to trust God by reminding us of the complexity of God's order and our own inability to grasp God's wisdom and goodness. So I just want to say this, and we'll wrap up, and I know I went really long, and I apologize. In the world, we see three kinds of things that we can perceive as wisdom, and this leads us into next week. Number one, we see people who are really versed in the principles of Chachma and Proverbs. They may never have read Proverbs. Some have, some haven't. There are people in the church and out of the church who express a sort of wisdom which shows that they understand, are really good at the way the universe often works. But these people without having run into challenges to these principles, become Job's friends. <laughs> they become people without humility. They become people of self-righteousness and arrogance and judgment, and we know them. The motivational speakers who have no empathy. The successful businessmen who don't understand that poverty sometimes is chance happening to them. The politician who says, if you will just do things my way, all will be good. These are the people well-versed, perhaps, in the principles of Proverbs, and it's easy to follow them because they offer us this tantalizing idea that Chakma is simple. And sometimes we crave something. Number two, we have those who have learned to trust God above their own understanding. We have the people who actually believe that Proverbs and Scripture are generally true. They understand the the powerful nature of Hakma, because they believe God's wisdom, which means paradoxically, they hold loosely to all the principles and formulas that are thrown at them. And these people are reflected differently than the first group. They usually aren't reflected in the same self-righteousness and arrogance. They come off differently and they look differently, and that can help us know which group we should associate with. There's actually a third people, third group of people, and that's those who appear worldly-wise. They maybe never encountered the scripture at all. Maybe they're not even looking at the principles of Hakma, but they appear shrewd because they navigate well the fallen world in which we live. 
But when we say well, what we mean is they navigate it to their benefit. And we think if they can do it, I can too. And sometimes we call these people wise. They're street smart. We call them wise, but often they're actually the opposite. Gaining the whole world but losing their soul. Or their families. Or their heart. Or their relationships. Sometimes when God's wisdom seems to fail, when the Hachbad and the Hevel collide, and the smoke gets in our eyes and our lungs and we don't understand anything. Sometimes when that happens, we might even be inclined to think that this path of the worldly wise makes more sense. And that those who trust scripture are simply naive. Jesus spent an awful lot of time in his conversations and in his sermons trying to undo this kind of worldly wisdom which captures religious people of God as much as it captures secular people. Things like the Sermon on the Mount, things like his constant reminders to his own apostles that they should not be like the power structures of the world in which they live, his constant reminders to them that they should not be like them, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Why are Jesus saying so paradoxical and weird? Because he's trying to shake the worldly wisdom out of us. So next week, what we're going to talk about, we're going to start, we're going to take two weeks talking about how to tell the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom. How to tell the wise men from the wise guys. How to tell the wise from the lies. I haven't decided which title to use, but it'll be one of them. <laughs> how to tell the difference, as James says, from wisdom that comes from above versus wisdom that comes from below. Because James says, Worldly wisdom doesn't even come from the world, it comes from the opposer. Because sometimes all we need is a little help. And it might help us to know who to trust in this world. It might also help us critique our, critique our own actions and views and be able to say of ourselves, hmm, is that wise? Maybe not. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.